All right. Well, amen to that, right? What a great song. Thank you so much to the ladies for sharing with us this morning and turning our attention to where we're going to be today. So I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. When you're in Bible college and you're studying for the ministry, there's a class that you have to take, and it's on homiletics, and that's the study and the art of preaching. And so uh, I think I was a sophomore or a junior when I took that class. I remember the first sermon that I preached. It had to be uh, five minutes long, a five-minute sermon, and you're all thinking, wow, we would enjoy a five-minute sermon every once in a while, but... You know me, and you're not going to get that. Amen. <laughs> so uh, in that class, I remember something profound that our instructor shared with us, and he said, he said, guys, don't ever get up in the pulpit and make an excuse for what you're about to share. And I thought, wow, that's great advice. We don't want to make excuses for what we're going to be sharing. And so this is not an excuse. Last week, you know that Pastor Flip called about a day before uh, uh, he was going to preach last week. And so I had a little bit of time to prepare, and we were able to uh, hopefully, substantively look at the miraculous birth of the church, and hopefully it was meaningful, and hopefully you were challenged by it, and hopefully that you were able to put some of these things into your life. Well, that's one thing. I got a call from Bruce this morning, and so he was supposed to preach today. And so, whereas I had a day last week, I had an hour <laughs> this week. That's not an excuse. Don't call my former professor and rat me out. I'm just saying, uh, we're in this together, right? <laughs> so we're going to uh, do the best that we can do. I, I actually um, decided what I wanted to do here was to kind of make a little bit of a shift, a little bit of change, uh, maybe building off a little bit as to what we looked at last week. And so I've asked you to turn to Luke chapter 2. I had Phil read for us this morning, verses 1 through 7. I want to read verses 8 through 11, and then uh, I want to talk to you about the miraculous new birth of a Christian the miraculous new birth of a Christian. Next week, hopefully, we will consider the miraculous birth of Jesus. This, I think, I hope, will be a good lead-in to that. And so look with me at verses 8 through 11. Verse 8, In the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. I think the King James says they were sore afraid. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ the Lord. I love this phrase here in verse 10. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. 
It'll be for all the people. When Jesus Christ came to the earth in the form of a baby in a manger, he was God incarnate, God in the flesh. He came from the glories of heaven to the ravages, the sin-filled world to to come as a babe in a manger and to grow up and to live a sinless life. He lived some 33 years before he went to the cross to fulfill his purpose in coming, which was to die in the place of all who would believe in him. The angel said, do not be afraid. You know, there's something about that, isn't there? There's something about fear that grips us. I think all of us have been afraid. Even the most macho guys that I've ever met in my life, they've had seasons of time in their life where they have been fearful. All of this was coming upon Mary and Joseph, and the angel says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. It's for all the people. The gospel is indiscriminate. Every person is born dead in their trespasses and sins. They are born to die spiritually. And yet Jesus Christ came to give us new life. All those who would place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, repenting of their sin and believing in him for who he is and what he accomplished on the cross of Calvary, we can become a new Christian. And what happens then? What happens when we trust in Jesus Christ? And we talked a little bit about this last week, didn't we? We talked about the work of the Spirit of God, that he gives us a new birth. We are new creatures in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. We are alive spiritually rather than dead spiritually. Salvation is not just reciting a few words to appease God and then he will save us. Salvation is a true heart change that he rots within us. He brings to us. And the work of the Spirit is that he regenerates us and we're new in Christ. And so that's what I want to concentrate on this morning, specifically as it relates to this idea of great joy. Great joy. I knew a lady back when I was a kid, and um, they called them vanity license plates. And so you had to know somebody in state government to get a vanity license plate. And this lady must have known somebody because her license plate said joy. That was it. Joy. And so whenever you saw their car, whenever you saw this lady, you thought of this idea of joy. And so I think probably her whole life, people were looking at her life and, and wondering, is this lady exude the joy of the Lord? Is this lady a joyful lady, or is she some sort of a weird gal that has joy on her license plates, but she is bound by her circumstances? She's not joyful at all. In our home, we have, on the door that goes out to the garage, we have a large uh, decoration that says J-O-Y, joy. It's a reminder in, it, during the Christmas season that we as Christians are to be joyful. We are to have joy. We are to be joyful. And so this morning, this is what I want to share with you. I want to share with you about the, 
the mandate, the, the concept, the biblical uh, directive of us being joyful as God's people. And the Greek word for joy in the New Testament is kara, and it basically means gladness or delight or exuberance. So joy, kara, is a noun. Of course, a noun is a person, place, or thing. Rejoice, kairo, is the verb form of joy. It shows action. It's the action of rejoicing. To rejoice or to be joyful means to practice joy. And so with those definitions in mind, I want to talk to you this morning about practicing joy. So if you want to take some notes this morning, I want to center our attention on five things that we need to know about joy if we want to practice joy. Five things that we want to know about joy if we want to practice joy. And the first thing we need to know is that our joy is from the Lord. Our joy is from the Lord. In the same way that love is not a feeling, joy is not a feeling. It's a, it's a fruit of the Spirit. John MacArthur says that joy is not a feeling. It's a deep-down confidence that God is in control of everything for the believer's good and his own glory, and thus all is well no matter what the circumstances. The confidence that MacArthur speaks of is a God-given confidence. Again, our joy is from the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1.6 says, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In other words, you cannot have true Christian joy if you're not a Christian, unless you possess the Holy Spirit of God. And so, as I said, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. And so I want to show you this. So go with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. This is the great passage of Scripture that talks about the deeds of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 16. And this is so rich for our understanding. Verse 16 here in Galatians chapter 5, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because that, those are not fruits of a believer in Jesus Christ. But, he says in verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, and if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. This should be so encouraging for us. 
as we become a true believer in Jesus Christ, something happens in our life. God, through the Spirit, does a work in us. We're not just warmed over people that said a few words to God in hopes of being saved. No, there's a complete and total transformation that takes place in the life of the true believer in Jesus Christ. This is such an important passage for us to understand as Christians. Paul begins by stating that it's the responsibility of those who possess the Spirit of God to walk by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, and to walk in accordance with the Spirit. And so upon our conversion, upon our repentance from sin and faith in Christ, we're given the Holy Spirit to indwell us, right? We spoke of this last week. Ephesians 4.30 tells us that the Spirit is God's seal of possession on our lives. Upon our conversion, the flesh is not eradicated, but the Spirit of God becomes the new directing power, the new directing influence in all that we say, in all that we do. The Spirit takes up resident within our flesh. And so you can imagine this battle that ensues between the Spirit and the flesh. Paul says, before we came, became a Christian, the only directing power, the only directing influence in our lives was our own fleshly desires, right? The deeds of the flesh that we just read about. Flesh now has a roomie, and the roomie is the Spirit, the Spirit of God. The Spirit is on the lease, and so there's a battle that ensues. Our fleshly desires didn't produce righteousness, they produced unrighteousness. And so you can imagine the Spirit of God within us and our own fleshly desires are diametrically opposed to one another. They're at war with one another. There's a constant battle between the flesh and the Spirit in the life of the Christian. Because we know until we're glorified, we will still deal with the flesh, right? We will still deal with our fleshly human desires. But one day, as we stand before the Lord and we see him, we'll become like him because we'll see him in the way that he is and we will have that full, final transformation. We'll be glorified in his presence. And I cannot wait for that. Don't you get tired of the battle? <laughs> don't, you get, don't you get frustrated with yourself? I do. I look, I look back and I go, why'd you do that? Why did you do that? Why did you say that? Why did you act that way? I think there is some regret that we have as Christians because we look at our life and we go, shouldn't we be far beyond this? Shouldn't we not have to deal with these things any longer? Shouldn't this be something that we have whipped in the Christian life by now? Some of us have been saved for 40, 50 years, and we're still dealing with things in the Christian life. Sound familiar? Do you deal with the same thing? It's frustrating, isn't it? So when we deal with frustration, we have to go back to the promises of God. The promises of God are this, that one day that's not going to be an issue. One day it's not going to be a battle. One day we will be glorified in the presence of God in Christ Jesus in glory. And that is the hope of the Christian, that we won't have this battle any longer. We won't have this, this fleshly war with the Spirit of God. 
Paul's exact wording here in verse 17 is that they are in opposition to one another. There's no congruity. There's no, nothing that makes them in any way the same. They're fighting against one another, the flesh and the spirit. It's the ultimate battle between good and evil. But verse 16 says that if we walk by the spirit, we will not carry out the desires of the flesh. There's the key. Walking by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit. Romans 7, 18 reminds us that there's no good thing that comes from the flesh. Now, now notice in verses 19 through 22, again, what the flesh produces. Look at verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. That's not an exhaustive list. And things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of the flesh is unrighteousness. In fact, Paul says it's, it's not hard to identify the fruit of an unbeliever. If, if an unbeliever, if a, if a person is practicing these things, Paul says, they are not and cannot be a Christian. If they are regularly practicing these things, if this is who they are, look, we, we may sin and we may do some of these things, but it, it's temporary. We confess our sin, and he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if a person is practicing these things, this is who they are. They cannot be a Christian. These are the deeds of the flesh. This is what wars against the Spirit. So the key word there is practice. It, it's the Greek word proso. It means to repeat over and over, to exercise. Kathy's been exercising and doing some work at the local gym. And um, she set up a little part of the room upstairs where she has her office. And there was an open area there. And she said to me a few times that she would like to have a uh, new weight bench, a weight bench. We, we don't have one in the house. And so um, I've uh, been looking on Facebook Marketplace. I found one, brand new, right out of the box. So I got that for her yesterday. We got that set up in her room because she wants to exercise. She wants to continue to practice things that are going to be good for her. I've been trying to practice good eating habits. <laughs> There's this ongoing battle that's taking place. Oh, I want to I want to do this. I want to do this. And then Thanksgiving hit. And then I'm like, okay, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to I'm not succumbing anymore to this kind of stuff. Here we are in the Christmas season. I've been doing pretty good, to be honest with you, but it, it's a battle. It's a battle. And so the question is, what are we practicing? It's one thing to desire to practice a certain way. 
There are a lot of guys that want to be the next Michael Jordan. There are a lot of guys that want to be the next LeBron James, but they're not willing to put in the word. They're not willing to practice anyone who's had any success at anything in life, I believe. They've had to practice. And so this is what we're referring to here when he says that those who practice these things, those who rehearse these things, those who are constantly embroiled in these kinds of things, if a person practices the sins listed here by Paul, if he repeats over and over the same sins without repentance, it's an evidence that he's not a person who possesses the Spirit of God because there's no battle. There's no battle going on in that person's life. Instead, it's evidence that such a person is not walking by the Spirit, but they're walking by the flesh. And make no mistake, we get good at what we practice. Right? I mean, the more we do things, the better at them we should get. Those are not things we want to get better at. However, he does talk to us about what we are to continue to get better at. And we have the empowerment of the Spirit to do so. We understand that certain trees produce certain kinds of fruit. <laughs> so what, what makes an apple tree an apple tree is that it produces apples. What makes an orange tree an orange tree is that it produces oranges. Notice here in verses 22 and 23 the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I think we also understand that Scripture is replete with change language. When someone becomes a Christian, there's a noticeable change in their affections, their actions, and their attitudes, the three A's of this transformational pro uh, process. Affections, actions, and attitudes. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We were once children of darkness, but when we became a Christian, we became a, children, a child of the light. We are new creatures in Christ. Old things have gone to the wayside. We are new in Jesus Christ. You want to talk about a miraculous birth? It's what the Spirit of God does in us. But while all that is true, Paul says that we must still walk by the Spirit. So God does all this work. He gives us the Spirit of God to indwell us. He, he, he uses the Spirit of God to empower us in the Christian life. But we are told as Christians that we must walk by the Spirit. We are to be filled with the Spirit. And the two words that I like to use when I teach on the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is Ephesians 5.18, is to uh, saturate ourselves in the things of God, to saturate ourselves in the Scriptures and to surrender to the control of the Lord, of the Spirit. So we surrender, we, we saturate. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. We were once children of the darkness, but when we became a Christian, we became children of the light. We are new creatures in Christ, and we must then walk by the Spirit. It's an evidence of a true believer in Jesus. It doesn't cause the new birth. It's a result of the new birth. 
It's, it's a result of this miraculous thing that God does in us, a desire to walk by the Spirit. We must mortify the flesh. We must kill the flesh. We must render the flesh impotent by walking in the Spirit. This is the part of sanctification that is cooperative. So justification, monergistic, right? God does a work in us. He saves us. He declares us righteous. That's what justification means. We are declared righteous. God does it, all of it. He brings salvation to us. He declares us righteous by faith. This was the great battle in the Protestant Reformation. Justification by faith. Not justification by faith plus works. Not justification by faith plus the sacraments. But justification by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. So there's this amazing thing that God does. He saves us. And when he does, then he gives us his spirit to indwell us and to empower us in the Christian life. He does all that. But the sanctification process, the growing process, is not necessarily fully monergistic. It is monergistic in the sense sense that we are set apart unto God at salvation, just like we're declared righteous at salvation. So we are justified and we are sanctified fully in that sense at regeneration, at conversion, at salvation. But there's a thing as it relates to sanctification that's progressive in nature, that we continue to grow in our sanctification as we live out the Christian life. We will never be sinless. You've heard this before. We we will never be sinless, but by God's grace, as we're obedient to him and as we're empowered by the Spirit, we will sin less as we continue on in the Christian life. I would certainly hope that those of us who've been saved for 40 or 50 years are in a much better position before the Lord than we were back then. I would certainly hope that the Lord has brought about major change in our life where we don't practice those things anymore, but we're practicing the fruit of the Spirit. Not because it's just happening, but it's, we want to practice the fruit of the Spirit. We want that to be who we are. We want to practice those things. But there is a level of synergism in sanctification that we must mortify the flesh. We must kill the flesh. We must render the flesh impotent. And how do we do that? By being filled with the Spirit, by walking in the Spirit. A lot of people say they're a Christian They say that they have trusted in Christ. Are they exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit? And all of what I just shared is foundational in our understanding of true Christian joy. Joy is from the Lord. Joy is from the Lord. It's a fruit of the Spirit. But it is ours to practice. Yes, It is an ongoing battle, for sure, but the battle is winnable because we possess the Holy Spirit of God. 
And so we can and we will win the battle by having a settled confidence that God is in control of all things, that he superintends all things for his glory and our good. Number two, our joy is in the Lord. It's not only from the Lord, it's in the Lord. So turn over to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. Verse 1. Now Paul's writing to the church at Philippi here. My favorite verse, by the way, in the Bible, that you know people who have adopted a life verse. Um, my favorite verse uh, is a challenge to me every day when paul said in philippians 121 for to me to live is christ and to die is gain that should be our prayer our daily prayer before the lord for for to us to live is christ and to die is gain only in the sense that we get to go and be with our savior at that point but look at verse one of philippians chapter three finally my brethren rejoice in the lord to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. And the theme of the book of Philippians, or this letter that he wrote to the church at Philippi, is joy, rejoicing. So as Paul sits in a, in, a, in a Roman prison cell, he's writing about joy. He talks about he's not a slave to his circumstances anymore. It doesn't matter if he's experiencing good things or bad things. It doesn't matter anymore because his joy is in the Lord. Our joy is in the Lord. He tells the Philippian believers here to rejoice in the Lord. This is the key to having joy. We just saw that true joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's from the Lord. But as we exhibit joy, we realize that our joy is in the Lord. It's because of the Lord. So our source of joy is from the Lord, and we practice joy. We do it because He's the Lord. Master, curios, we rejoice because of who Christ is and what he's done for us. 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9 says, and, all, and, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. There's so many reasons that we are to Rejoice in the Lord. But let me just give you five, if you're taking notes this morning. Let me just give you five. First, we rejoice in the Lord because Philippians 2.11 tells us that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. So Jesus came as a babe in the manger he lived a perfect life. He goes to the cross as the sinless son of God to die in the place of sinners. But the grave could not hold him. He's resurrected on the third day. He is on the earth in a glorified body for some 40 days. He ascends up into heaven. He's preparing a place. John 14 says he's, he's preparing a place for us. Can you imagine how glorious that place is going to be Jesus is Lord. 
We don't choose to receive him as Savior only. He is Lord. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, we will be saved. He is Lord. Number two, we rejoice in the Lord because Colossians 1.17 tells us that he is the creator and sustainer of the universe, and so we rejoice in the Lord because of his power. There is none like him. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of all things. Third, we rejoice in the Lord because Ephesians 5.2 tells us that he loved us and gave himself up for us, and so we rejoice in the Lord because of his great love and grace and mercy. Four, we rejoice in the Lord because Romans 8.28 says that he is sovereign over all things and he's working all things together for our good and his glory. And so we rejoice in the Lord because he's in sovereign control of all things. Look, I think it's a good thing we can't control everything. That's the problem we've got. We want to control everything, right? We want to make it happen the way we want it to happen, but that's not how life is. There's twists and there's turns. He's in sovereign control of all things. And then fifth, we rejoice in the Lord because John 14, 3 tells us that he's coming again to receive us unto himself, that where he is, we may be also. And so we rejoice in the Lord because of his impending return. Jesus is coming again. It's called the second coming. The first coming is what we read about this morning. The second coming is when he comes in all of his glory for his people. So our joy is from the Lord, our joy is in the Lord. And then the third thing we need to know about joy is that our joy is to be habitual. It's to be habitual. I want to see how... I want you to see how this all fits together, how it all ties together. First, again, as I said, our joy is from the Lord. Second, our joy is in the Lord. And now third, our joy is to be habitual. And so, again, Paul, who's in prison, writes to the church at Philippi in, in Philippians 4.4, to rejoice in the Lord always. As Christians, we ought to be in the habit of rejoicing. We ought to have the word joy on the license plate of our life. We ought to have joy across our chest. We should be the most joyful people on the planet. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. And so if you're a negative Nelly, you miss the essence of the Christian life. Feelings come and go. Our, our feelings are often driven by our circumstances. But Paul is saying here that while circumstances change, the one thing that's not supposed to change is our joy. We're to always be glad because God is in control. Our joy is to be habitual. Paul told the church at Thessalonica the same thing as he told the Philippians. He said to rejoice always. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament. Rejoice always, or rejoice forevermore, some translations say. The bottom line, it shouldn't just be periodic, sporadic, dependent upon our circumstance. We should exude the joy of the Lord because we're to rejoice in the Lord always. 
And this is what I believe that the scriptures teach as it relates to joy. And so when we read this initial story about this, this great joy that has come to the world in the person of Jesus Christ, it's amazing. It's amazing. The fourth thing that we need to know about joy is that our joy is not dependent upon our circumstances. I mentioned this earlier here. Paul, of course, is the poster boy for this and, and is amazing in, in Philippians chapter 2 as he talks about how it used to be that he was constantly succumbing to his circumstance. I know what this is like. When, when something difficult is going on in your life, seems to consume you or consume us. That shouldn't consume us. The joy of the Lord should consume us. Our joy should not be dependent upon our circumstances. Now, I get it, because I don't know of anyone who enjoys experiencing trials. You'd be a weird person if you enjoyed experiencing trials. None of us I've not met anybody yet that enjoys experiencing trials. But they are a regular part of life. But even trials are not to ruin our joy because our joy is from the Lord, it's in the Lord, it's to be habitual. James 1, 2 and 3 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Consider it all joy when difficult things come into your life. Do we even think of that? Or are we like, oh no, we're experiencing this and we're consumed by it and, 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 and we become uh, an Eeyore, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like, oh. James says we're even to consider trials a joy. Consider it all joy when you encounter all these things. These things are brought into our life. I'm telling you, Scripture is clear about this. These things are brought into our lives for our good. And his, we need not to have a utopian Christian life where everything is all roses. It's not that way. And it's getting increasingly worse if we don't have the joy of the Lord now, what about when it gets worse? Our joy should not and is not dependent upon our circumstances. And then fifth and finally, our joy is to be shared with others. And this is what Phil was talking about this morning. As Phil was in the hospital, sick as a dog, and I went up and saw him and... Uh, he was, you know, not doing well, couldn't hardly talk. It didn't affect his joy. He, he used his circumstance for the glory of the Lord. One of our, well, our most senior member of our church, Pat Farnsler, is in the Lebanon Valley home and Kathy and I were up to see her um, a couple weeks ago. And she said, I, I just don't know why the Lord doesn't take me. I'm just sitting here. It was 3.30 in the afternoon that we got there, and she had been sitting in her chair since early morning. The same chair. 
She said, Pastor Dave, why, why doesn't the Lord just tell I'm ready to go home? I said, Pat, I don't know. I don't know. I don't get paid to know those things. It's way, way, way above our pay grade to know these things. She's sharp. She looked great. We had a great conversation. We talked and we talked and we talked. Probably an hour and a half we were there with her. But I said to her, I said, this, this comes down to perspective. First of all, we trust in the Lord that he's got it, right? It's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So God has got it. God has an, we all have an appointment with death. We don't get to determine that. So God has an appointed time for all of us. And I said, your appointed time is not yet now. So what do we do when we're in a circumstance like this where you're bored to tears, you're in a chair uh, most of the day, you can't be active because of physical issues. So what does a person do? And so this is what we talked about for some time. I talked to her about all these things that we're considering today. I said, you have a roommate, you can talk to her about the Lord. You have people that come in to care for you. You have a gal that gets you dressed every morning and gets you all fixed up. You can talk to her about the Lord. You have nurses that come in and check on you every day. You can talk to them about the Lord. And I said, Pat, you have been exemplary as an encourager. And let me just say, many of you are great encouragers to me and to Kathy, to our family, Pastor Flip and Missy and his family. Great encouragers. She is a tremendous encourager. She has encouraged me. She called me every week for the last 12 years. I just call him, see how you're doing. I just want you to know that I love you. I'm praying for you. I mean, this is what we talked about. I said, just be you. Just be who you are. You are such an encouragement to me and to so many others. Just be you. Exude the joy of the Lord. She said, I will. And so you can pray for her. But our joy is to be shared with others. Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. How about a little bonus here as we close things out? This is from the Old Testament prophet Nehemiah who said in Nehemiah 8 and verse 10 that the joy of the Lord is our strength. It's our strength. It's what fortifies us. The joy of the Lord fortifies us as a Christian. As God's people, our strength to live for Him and overcome all these difficulties in life, it doesn't lie within ourselves. It lies with Him. Our joy is from the Lord. Our joy is in the Lord. Our joy is to be habitual. Our joy is not to be dependent upon our circumstances. And our joy is to be shared with others. So my routine every morning is I get up, I grab a coffee, and I head down to my office. So one day I was, I've done this pretty well actually over the years, every day for the last 12 years. I, this is my routine. So I grab coffee with creamer. I'm currently working through some coconut creamer. 
But I grab a cup of coffee and I head down to my office. It's down in the basement of our house. And so sometimes I'm carrying things with me as I'm going down the steps. And so I have my cup of coffee. I have other things that I'm carrying down. And I'm walking down and I'm tall. And so there's that header that goes across at the bottom of the stairs. So I always have to duck to get under that. I've hit my head probably 50 times on that thing. So I'm going down the steps. I'm carrying coffee. I'm carrying whatever it was that I had in my arms, and I kind of stumbled a little bit, and the coffee went out of the cup. It makes me think, the reason why I spilled out coffee was because that's what I had in my cup. I want you to follow me with this. I spilled out coffee because that's what I had in my cup. If I would have had tea in my cup or milk or water, that's what I would have spilled out. You following me? When these kinds of things happen in life, what's going to spill out of our cup? Is the joy of the Lord going to spill out of our cup? Is that what's in our cup? The joy of the Lord? It's really a reminder to me that whatever is in our cup when life circumstances come our way, that's what's going to spill out. So we ask ourselves the question, what's in your cup? When you get jostled around by life circumstances, what spills out of your cup? Is it anger? Is it cursing? Woe is me? Or is it the joy of the Lord? Folks, life is short. Pat said, Pastor Dave, you have no idea. She's 90-some years old. She said, it seems like I was just 30. I was just 40. I was just 50. And now she's 90-some years old. Life is fleeting. Life is short. And so why would we choose to live a joyless life when the joy of the Lord is available? It makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense. The joy of the Lord is available. It is our strength. And that's what we want to concentrate on this morning in our minds and in our hearts before the Lord. The miraculous new birth of Christ. We can be joyful. We can be joyful. The miraculous new birth of a Christian who is in Christ Jesus. The joy of the Lord's our strength. Let's pray. Our Father, this morning as we consider the miraculous new birth of us as your people, your servants, Christians who love you and trust in you, we need sometimes a reminder about how it is that we're to live. We get so caught up in our daily circumstances and all these things. Thank you for this reminder today about the joy that is ours in Christ, brought to us by the Spirit of God who lives within us. May we walk by the Spirit. May we be filled with the Spirit. We thank you. In the name of Jesus, we pray.